Patrick tossed down the paper in disgust and blew a raspberry. All of the other colonies simply lying down at the feet of England like this and giving up without a fight? It appears so, answered John Fleming, a lawyer from Cumberland. As this news trickles in from England, the colonial legislatures are sadly accepting the inevitable. Nothing is inevitable if you speak up. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll hear Chapter 44 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, and to uh, <coughs> wax poetic, the chapter is entitled A Voice in the House, but to get things started off right, let's bring out a doggy, a cat, and a mouse. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. <laughs> <laughs> Max, I was just getting started. <laughs> That's what I were afraid of. We, <laughs> <laughs> oui, you may have done us all a favor, mon ami. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, fine. So, if they're all finished with their wisecracks... Please welcome your host, Liz, Nigel, and Max. Nah. <laughs> well, well, monsieur. That was mature. Twas rather uncouth. Aye, that's for sure. See, lad, you're not the only one that can rhyme them. I never said I was. L- listen, all that aside, uh, do you guys smell something? Why, old chap, whatever have you done? Not me. I mean, something smells, ew, nasty, rotten. Do you smell it, Max? <laughs> Are you kidding, lad? With our keen, innate senses of smell, we animals can always tell. Rotten eggs or red roses, we just follow our noses. And wherever the smell befell, we can tell. <laughs> I say. <laughs> Jolly good, eh? <laughs> well done, Les. Uh, guys? And moi? We, Liz, voodoo. With your keen senses of smell, can you tell what it is? I mean... Seeing as how you completely messed up my poetic introduction. (laughs) I say, old chap, uh, you think that was messed up. You should see what Max did to that bag of trash you left in the garage. What? Mosey! Max, did you tear into the trash? (laughs) Did I tear into it? No, that's a wee bit harsh, then. Well, how would you put it? Uh, More like recycling. Oui, and that is good for the environment, no? Does it smell like it's helping the environment? Well, I suppose that depends on what you consider to be a pleasant aroma. We, oui, uh, you know what they say, monsieur. One man's trash is another man's treasure, no? Uh, precisely, my dear. Uh, for no rodent could resist the scent wafting from your garage. La fragrance garbage. <laughs> Great. Now I'm in a perfume commercial. Listen, Max, no more tearing into garbage bags, huh? For if I tie it in a knot then the stuff inside will rot. And besides, what if there'd been chicken bones in there? Uh, they'd be clean chicken bones? (laughs) Don't worry, there weren't any. And you know this because... (laughs) Well, that is not important. You were there too, weren't you, Liz? (laughs) Well, monsieur, with my instinctive feline curiosity being what it is, 
How could I possibly have reason? Nah, huh? How about you, Nigel? Did La Fragrance, Le Garbage, the scent no rodent can resist, entice you to partake of the bountiful cuisine? Well, uh, no, actually, it was the plenteous array of Fruit Loops that caught my attention, you see. All right, that's it, all of you. Out to the garage and clean up that mess. But, monsieur, you have a chapter to read, no? I do indeed. We want to listen, too. Well, I guess you better hurry, then. Uh, indeed, we shall hurry. In fact, I shall scurry. And don't even worry. I will be done in a flurry. Or we aren't furry. <laughs> yeah, I'll be the judge and jury. Chapter 44, A Voice in the House. Mount Brilliant, April 27th, 1765. How utterly depressing, Nigel wailed, shaking his head as he read a letter while Liz looked over the April 18th edition of the Pennsylvania Gazette. Spread out across the front pages of the paper was the full content of the Stamp Act with the news that the House of Commons had passed it in February. Official word of King George signing the act into law on March 22nd had not yet reached the colonies, but Liz and Nigel already knew. Clary had told them everything that happened in London and had forwarded a letter that Benjamin Franklin had written to a friend in America after doing everything in his power to prevent the passage of the Stamp Act. Dr. Franklin writes... The tide was too strong against us. The nation was provoked by American claims of independence of the power of Parliament, and all parties joined by resolving in this act to settle the point. We might as well have hindered the sun setting. Nigel put down the letter. The dastardly deed is done. The cursed Stamp Act will take effect on November 1st. But that's a whole six months from now, Miss P noted. Couldn't Patrick speak up against the Stamp Act before then? Liz continued to scan the paper, but answered with a frown. Unfortunately, the next session of the House of Burgesses starts in only three days, and the two seats from Louisa County are still taken by the Johnson brothers. I failed to come up with anything else for William to do. He should be departing any moment now for Williamsburg to join the session. Nigel wrinkled his forehead. Oh, why couldn't Patrick have been a Burgess when he could have railed against this coming act before it was passed? Even if by some miracle he were elected Burgess this very day, the spring session will soon be underway in Williamsburg. Surely the House of Burgesses will read this dreadful Stamp Act news and quickly accept the fact that what's done is done, so they can move on to other matters. Miss P snorted and stomped her hoof into the dirt. Will you two listen to the words coming out of your mouths? You sound like the end of the world is already come and gone and you missed it. Now, if Patrick is supposed to do something grand with his voice in the house about this Stamp Act business, then you best have faith that he will. If that riddle said he's going to speak five words or two words or whatever it may be, then I suggest you get on with figuring out how to help him get there to say them. She put her head down low to get eye level with Liz and Nigel. Remember, 
Those possums thought it was a done deal, too, until Patrick got involved. It ain't over till it's over. Liz and Nigel looked at one another, chagrined by the scolding Miss P. had given them. I am sorry, mon ami. You are right. We should not sit here and have a pity party over what we have not been able to do so far, Liz confessed, straightening up. We have faced far greater seeming impossibilities in our lives, have we not, Nigel? We must proceed to help Patrick and see where his voice leads. The spring session of the House of Belgesses will last a month in Williamsburg. Agreed, my dear. My apologies, Ms. P. I feel rather small at the moment, Nigel added with a frown. Nigel, you are small, Ms. P. teased the little mouse, leaning down to get in his face. But only in your size, not in your brains or your heart. I relish the compliment, my dear. Uh, thank you. Nigel lifted his chin and smiled. Right. Uh, well, we must pursue Liz's idea to find something for William Johnson to do before he leaves for Williamsburg so Patrick can take his seat. Patrick also needs a new suit of clothes to go with that Burgess seat, Miss P whinnied. Nigel wiggled his whiskers and grinned. Miss P, I truly appreciate your continued concern over Patrick's attire. He certainly could improve, but I don't think his dress will kill his chances of being heard. I don't care if I'll sound like I'm beating a dead horse. I hate that expression over Patrick's appearance, but this time I'm putting my hoof down, Miss P shouted as she repeatedly stamped her hoof in the dirt. If he becomes a Burgess, he had better dress like one. Dead horse, Liz repeated as an idea suddenly came to her. Kill his chances of being heard. Her eyes lit up with excitement. Perfect, mes amis. I know exactly what William can do. Merci. Now I must go write a note about the job to Monsieur Johnson. Uh, Nigel, you and Cato can drop it off this afternoon. There is no time to waste. Liz ran off, leaving Ms. P. and Nigel looking at one another in confusion. Ms. P. called after Liz as she ran off to search John Henry's study for pen and ink. Why you at it? Write Patrick a note telling him to buy a new suit before I carry him all the way to Williamsburg. Williamsburg, May 20th. Merci for bringing me, Clary, Liz beamed. I could not miss Mon Henry's debut in the House of Burgesses. Of course, Liz, Clary answered. She was disguised as a gentleman in town on business during the busy court days of Williamsburg. She blended in with the 600 visitors who had come to town filling the taverns, inns, coffee houses, and marketplace. Besides, you and Nigel need to act quickly on the fiddle's riddle once you figure out the rest. I will need to leave you soon to attend to other matters. Je comprends, Liz answered confidently. She smiled as she saw Patrick Henry proudly walking down Duke of Gloucester Street toward the Capitol. He was dressed in a crisp black linen suit with a fresh white shirt, a new tricorn hat, 
and polished black buckled shoes he had taken time to clean after the trip to Williamsburg. His clothes were not as fine or expensive as the genteel Tidewater elites, but they were respectable and neat. Be still my heart. He looks so handsome in his new clothes. <laughs> I think Ms. P was even more excited than Patrick about the new clothes, Nigel chuckled, joining the two friends on the south side of the Capitol. She suddenly clip-clopped happily into town with her head held high. Well, the suggested note seems to have encouraged Patrick to invest in his appearance, Liz replied. Sally even insisted Patrick splurge and buy a new hat and shoes for his 29th birthday, which he'll have while he's here. She made sure his wig was in good order as well. She and the children are so very proud of him. I am too. Mon Henry is a burgess at last. And your note suggesting that William Johnson take the position of coroner for Louisa County worked out just in time, my pet, Nigel added. Coroner is obviously not the job most humans seek out, but it is necessary and it pays well for writing out death certificates, Liz replied. <laughs> it is a rather dead-end job, <laughs> Nigel quipped with a jolly chuckle. William was more than happy to give up his seat so Patrick could run in such a quickly scheduled election, Liz reported. And it was wonderful to see more than 40 of Patrick's family and friends with land in Louisa drop everything to travel from Hanover and come vote for him. The people simply adore him. That they do, Clarie agreed with a grin, pointing to the Capitol. But just wait until he becomes a star inside those walls. Liz purred and whipped her tail back and forth excitedly. I do not wish to miss a moment of it. Shall we? Clarie picked Nigel up to put him in her pocket. She then picked up Liz to carry her under the folds of her cloak. Together, they walked inside the Capitol to witness the swearing-in of Patrick Henry Esquire as the new Burgess from Louisa County. Lewis's Tavern, Williamsburg, Tuesday, May 28th. Once Liz and Nigel got their bearings in the assembly room, they quickly discovered that they could hide in the middle of the action right under the clerk's table, which was covered with a long green tablecloth draped to the floor. With the late spring heat, the windows and doors of the assembly room were opened early to allow fresh air to circulate before the sessions promptly began at 10 a.m. Each morning, Liz and Nigel easily slipped inside the chamber and under the table before the Burgesses arrived. After Patrick took the time-honored traditional oaths to be sworn in as a Burgess on May 20th, he was appointed to fill a vacancy in the Committee on Courts of Justice and took his seat among the 60 other men gathered in the chamber. Although there were 116 total representatives in the House of Burgesses, nearly half of them had either already returned home after three weeks of service or had not attended the May session at all. Many of these men were planters and merchants who had to sacrifice their time and money to travel to Williamsburg. With the planting season well underway, many of the Burgesses had to attend to their vast crops, such as Colonel George Washington at his sprawling plantation in northern Virginia called Mount Vernon. Liz beamed when Patrick met George Washington for the first time, 
knowing it was because of Max's bravery that Washington was there at all. As the close of the May session neared, each day saw a few more Burgesses taking their leave and heading home. Most of the major business that needed attention had been covered at the beginning of May. Patrick listened to a myriad of routine business items like bills for building roads and unique items such as offering bounties on wolves or forbidding hogs to roam the streets in the new town of Richmond. Nigel had been especially interested in hearing a petition from the organist for Williamsburg's Bruton Parish Church, Peter Pelham, who was requesting reimbursement of 50 pounds for repairs he had made to the church organ. The mouse had so enjoyed spending time listening to Mr. Pelham practice his music that he opted to spend his nights snug inside the beautiful church. Mr. Pelham had been quite busy providing music at the governor's palace, as Governor Farquhar entertained Burgesses and guests visiting Williamsburg. Never had Nigel been happier to be a church mouse and drift off to the melodious tunes of Bach, Handel, and Telemann. Patrick Henry had caused quite the stir on his third day when he rose to speak for the first time in the House of Burgesses. The old guard of powerful members raised their eyebrows to see this new Burgess, who had been unusually elected without having first served in any other position in Virginia politics. This 28-year-old upstart shot straight to the top of the political arena and was ignorant of the unspoken rules about how things were run and he didn't really have any personal connections in the House of Burgesses, save Thomas Johnson. But Johnson had butted heads with the Speaker in previous sessions and was absent from this session. Although Patrick had previously impressed with Bland, the Randolph brothers, and Edmund Pendleton when he applied for his law license and presented the Dandridge case, that was before he was in the House. If Patrick directed his talent for piercing argument at them, their first positive impressions of him would quickly fade and turn hostile. And that is exactly what happened. This new, young, unknown backwoods Burgess did not keep respectfully quiet, as was expected of him, but decided that his first words in the House would challenge the most powerful man in Virginia, Speaker John Robinson. Robinson had proposed a bill to establish a public loan office to supposedly help some planters who had gone into debt from the still-depressed tobacco market. Patrick loudly and forcefully opposed the bill on principle, arguing that it would pay the debts of a few wealthy planters at the expense of the public. Little did Patrick know that a dark secret lay behind the real reason for the bill. Speaker Robinson also served as the treasurer of the colony and had already lent a hundred thousand pounds in public money to some of his friends. This bill would help him float those secret loans with public money. Although the bill passed despite his objections, Patrick's powerful oration immediately established him as the bold new voice for the backwoods and upcountry farmers against the Tidewater elite. Every one of them backed him, including George Johnston of Alexandria, to whom he had presented the Dandridge case in the fall. Johnston had a huge law practice and a plantation on the Potomac River in the upcountry of Virginia. But Patrick's voice also immediately gained him new enemies, the likes of Speaker John Robinson and his protege, Edmund Pendleton. 
the most skilled trial lawyer in Virginia. For the first time, there was almost a palpable change in the air of the Virginia House of Burgesses. The newer outsiders from the West and upcountry were standing up to the older insiders from the East, and the voice of Patrick Henry was leading the charge. Patrick spent the following days in the house and the following evenings in the company of George Johnston and his other new friends. They frequented one of the more quiet taverns of Williamsburg, away from the heavy gambling and boisterous drinking that was common in the other taverns, like the Raleigh. Tonight, Patrick met with a trio of them in Lewis's tavern, discussing the one thing on the minds of all, but also the one thing the Virginia House of Burgesses refused to talk about. The Stamp Act. Littered about the table were the latest gazettes from the other colonies, and the outsider Burgesses read by the soft glow of lanterns as they devoured the news. They were eager to see what the other assemblies up and down the Atlantic seaboard were doing about the Stamp Act. It seems that even Boston's James Otis, who touted no taxation without representation, has given in to the passage of the Stamp Act, Patrick scowled, reading the news. Otis now says that it is the duty of all humbly and silently to acquiesce in all the decisions of the Supreme Legislature. Nine hundred and ninety-nine in a thousand of the colonists will never once entertain a thought but of submission to our sovereign and to the authority of Parliament in all possible contingencies, they undoubtedly have the right to levy internal taxes on the colonies. Patrick tossed down the paper in disgust and blew a raspberry. <laughs> all of the other colonies simply lying down at the feet of England like this and giving up without a fight? It appears so, answered John Fleming, a lawyer from Cumberland. As this news trickles in from England... The colonial legislatures are sadly accepting the inevitable. Nothing is inevitable if you speak up, Patrick answered. Why won't our Burgesses even discuss the Stamp Act? You missed the opening session, Patrick, but uh, Speaker Robinson and the conservative members decided it would be best to put off any further discussion of the act until we receive an official reply from England to these petitions we sent over in December. George Johnston explained. He tapped a copy of the Virginia petitions that the House had sent to England. They were filled with the humble pleadings of a submissive House. Colonel Robert Munford of Mecklenburg wrinkled his brow. He was from the far western reaches of Virginia and owned a plantation on the Stanton River. Well, it appears a captain in Annapolis just arrived with the news that the act has already passed. Look at this from the May 2nd Maryland Gazette. They printed the entire Stamp Act along with news of its passage. King George signed it into law in March. He looked up at the men around the table with a frown. It takes effect November 1st. Not only do we have a speaker who wishes to postpone discussion about the act until the next session, Patrick lamented, scanning the local paper, he has kept our own Virginia Gazette from printing anything negative about the Stamp Act. Munford shook his head and got to his feet. Gentlemen, I have had enough for today and shall leave you with it. I bid you good night. Patrick, George, and John stood and shook hands with Munford, offering their evening farewells. 
Patrick pushed his spectacles on top of his head and wrinkled his brow as he took his seat, continuing the conversation. With this news, it is clear now that England has ignored our polite petitions, and it will be too late to do anything about it if we wait until the next session. Well, only a few short days remain in this session, John answered, nodding. And we're down to only 39 Burgesses who've stayed in town. I think that many of the Burgesses have already left town because they are afraid to take a stand and let their voices be heard. They know that if they speak words of protest or resistance against the act, they could be seen as disloyal subjects or even rebels, Patrick emphasized pointedly. He leaned back in his chair and tapped his finger angrily on the table. Look at the moves Parliament has made against the colonies with the Sugar Act and now the Stamp Act. Taxation without representation. Home searches without warrants. Quartering British troops in our homes that we must pay for. Treating accused citizens as guilty until proven innocent. Moving jury trials by peers at home to vice-admiralty courts far from home. If we remain silent... This will have far-reaching consequences, enabling the crown to only further destroy our liberties. John and George looked at one another in surprise, and then to Patrick, silently willing him to do something. Suddenly, Patrick stood up and screeched back his chair, leaning over to pick up the copy of the Virginia petitions. He read a line with a sarcastic tone. Nothing is further from our thoughts than to show the least disposition to any sort of rudeness. He slapped the petition on the table, spineless. No wonder they were ignored. He clenched his jaw and looked around the tavern at the common people who filled the tables. Not only were the original resolves written in the flowery language of the highly educated, refined Burgesses in order to appease the crown, they were written with words the common folk didn't use. The resolves didn't represent the voice of the people. Stay here, gentlemen. I'll be back. Liz and Nigel were huddled under a table nearby. Now, where do you suppose Patrick is going? Nigel wondered. I am not certain, but you are the only one small enough to find out, mon ami, Liz replied. Go follow him. Right agreed Nigel as he darted out and followed Patrick Henry upstairs to his room. As the two gentlemen waited for Patrick to return, Liz listened to their conversation. She beamed as she heard how they admired her Henry's zeal. They weren't sure what Patrick was up to, but they were eager to find out. Liz and Nigel had been waiting day after day for the discussion of the Stamp Act to begin, but no one in the house had been willing to step up and take action. They knew time was running out. The May session would soon come to a close, and the governor would not reconvene them until fall at the earliest. Or, if the Burgesses did something rash or displeasing to the crown, Governor Farquhar could dissolve the House of Burgesses for an even longer period of time. If the governor dissolved them entirely, not only could he delay the next session indefinitely, but each Burgess would have to be re-elected to office all over again. "'My dear, you are in for a magnificent surprise!' Nigel exclaimed in a giddy voice when he rejoined Liz under the table. 
He preened his whiskers excitedly and pointed to the table as Patrick took his seat to rejoin the men. Seven surprises, to be exact. Patrick set the original Virginia petitions on the table and held his hand above them. Gentlemen, these resolves are what the House of Burgesses sent to the king. They were ignored. He pushed the paper aside and then took out a leaf of paper he had torn from his Coke-upon-Littleton law book. On it he had written seven new resolves. And these, he said with an assertive grin as his hand hovered over them, looking into the anxious eyes of the men, will not be so easy to ignore. It is so good to hear Mon Henry speak up, uh, and not just accept the king's arrogance. A voice in the house, indeed. Yes, uh, meanwhile, the voice in this house wants to know if you cleaned up the garage. <laughs> Hi, lad. I cleaned up the ice cream curtain and the tree that the lasagna came in. And I took care of the tuna fish can and some sort of cheesy casserole gleanings. And I, of course, uh, saw to it that the Fruit Loops were disposed of uh, properly. Uh-huh. Uh, getting back to our featured chapter today, I, I thought it was also great to hear the voice in the stable, as it were. Ah, uh, what? <laughs> uh, who would that be? The character at the beginning of today's chapter? Uh, <laughs> I think we might have missed that part. I'm referring to Miss P. Uh, apparently you didn't hurry all that much in cleaning up the garage. You would have known that. Well, it was a much more, uh, 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 consuming ordeal than anticipated. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, uh, uh, much more, uh, consuming. Well then, uh, why don't we all waddle over to Jenny's corner and find out where she got the inspiration for this colorful character, Ms. P. Uh, hey, Miss Jenny, uh, got a question for you. Oh, good. What can I help you with? Well, one of the most colorful characters in this book has got to be Ms. P. So tell us how you came up with this saucy mare. Oh, Ms. P. I will never forget the first time I heard that voice, and I can't do the voice as well as Ms. P. in the audiobook, but um, Edith Poindexter was the curator and authority at Patrick Henry's Red Hill in Brookneal, Virginia. And when I first started researching Patrick Henry, that was, of course, one of the first places I contacted was Patrick Henry's Red Hill, and I started emailing with Edith, and then I made my first trip up there, and she was this cute, petite, elderly lady, and she met me there, and we went walking down the gravel to go see Mr. Henry's grave. And so I, I'm sorry, I can't, it's impossible <laughs> to talk about Edith without doing Edith's voice, just because I hear it. She once lived on Patrick Henry's property. She and her husband, uh, Jack, not at Red Hill, but um, in the area. But she was the first one that took me to Patrick Henry's grave. She was the first one that told me about Patrick Henry dying in his chair at Red Hill. But I just grew to love Edith so much. And as I started my research, I mean, she pulled stuff out of file. She has file cabinets full of material information that she's been collecting on Patrick Henry for decades. Edith also was responsible for the genealogy of the Patrick Henry descendants branch. And so she did all this research because Patrick Henry had 17 children and 77 grandchildren. So more than likely, everyone in America is related to Patrick Henry at some point, at least a good chunk of them. So anyway, I have this 
careful or you'll end up in my novel. And I told Edith, I said, Edith, I got to put you in my book and I got to make you a character. Well, she and her husband, Jack, they had horses. And I thought, what if you were Patrick Henry's horse? And she was like, I'm an iconoclast. She loved to pretend to be sarcastic and stoic and all that, but she had this big old warm heart. And she would say these Southern things like, there's enough blue in the sky to knit a cat a pair of britches. I mean, she would say these Southern sayings, and I just fell in love with this woman. So I decided I would make her Patrick Henry's horse. Now, everybody calls Edith Ms. P-M-I-Z, capital P. And so, of course, that's what Ms. P had to be as the horse. And, of course, I had to make Jack Poindexter to be the one that gave Ms. P to Patrick Henry. And a funny little anecdote, the story about Bill, the stump sucker Bill that licked at the fence post. That was a real horse that belonged to Ms. P. Bill was Jack's horse, and he would lick those fence posts all the time. So anyway, that's where Ms. P came from. And I loved her so much that I really decided I needed to do more than just make a character of her. I wanted to dedicate the book to her. So I dedicated The Voice of the Revolution and the Key to her. When it first came out, she and I were able to actually have a book signing together at Red Hill, which was really fun. And then we lost her. Um, She passed away about a year and a half after. So it was such a blessing to have that time with Ms. P. I love her dearly. She loved me. She loved my books. And she always said, I love you good. So Ms. P, I love you good. Ah, thank you, Miss Jenny. That was rather touching. Uh, Edith may be gone, but not forgotten. For her legacy lives on in your unequaled equine, Ms. P. Uh, Mosey, uh, Ms. P be a horse. Ah, uh, yes, quite so. Uh, duly noted, Max. Uh, that's okay, Mosey. We all make mistakes. <laughs> like me, ripping open that garbage bag. Oui, but uh, now all is well, mes amis, for the mess has been uh, thoroughly cleaned up. Indeed, not a morsel. Uh, uh, there is uh, not a scrap to be found. Aye, clean as a dog whistle. Ah, great. Then with all that work, I'm guessing you guys must have worked up quite an appetite. Eh, pardon? Oh, you know, with all that work, you must be starving. (laughs) Well, oddly enough, old boy, I I am not the least bit hungry. (laughs) Hey, neither am I. Nonsense. But hey, don't worry. I ordered takeout for tonight, and it should be here any minute. And I got an extra helping for each of you. Oh, boy. Uh, 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 Oh, boy. Take out. Uh, well, old boy, uh, truth be told, uh, I'm afraid we've already done uh, take out tonight. Uh, we did uh, last night's take out. Uh, uh-oh. May I be excused? Uh, uh, me too. Oh, dear. I say, uh, right behind you. <laughs> Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. 
And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.